0: For our meditation and our preparation for communion tonight, I would like for us to consider, for you to consider with me, the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64. Just before Advent this year, I stumbled across this particular passage. I learned that in a number of churches, particular denominations, this is the passage that they read on the first Sunday of Advent. And so I've been thinking about it for a few weeks, mulling it over, captured and also haunted. By the picture and driven to a greater hope in the God who comes near to his people. So I invite you tonight to join me in our meditation upon these ancient words that are words of life and the words of hope for the people of God. In order to give you the context, I'll start in uh, chapter 63 of Isaiah, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, your redeemer. Our redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Please pray with me. Father, this night is a special one for us, one in which we recognize that you have come down and also that we're waiting for you to come down again. We know your spirit is with us, and so we ask, Lord, that you would come down in that way and meet with us. Speak to our hearts. Speak to us from your word that we would find hope and encouragement, that we would uh, find strength for the things that we face, that we would draw closer to you, closer to one another, and that we would be ambassadors of this good news to a dark world around us. Lord, bless our meditation and our time together in your word this night. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage finds us in the bit of a... a bitter lament, right? It's not perhaps an ordinary Christmas Eve service passage. As we read at the end of chapter 63, the prophet has called out. He's called out for God to be merciful, to look down and see the plight of his people and be, to be moved to act on their behalf. It's uncertain. We don't know exactly the context of it. It's uncertain if, if Isaiah is referring to a specific calamity or with the general attitude of the people. But the feeling is something like this, as one commentator put it. We are your people, even though it doesn't seem like it. The feeling is not exactly disbelief in God's fatherhood. Verse 16 is, is a clear passage that you know, tells us that they know that God is their father. And yet... It's a feeling of something like abandonment or the experience of feeling like an orphaned nation whose God has given them over to their enemies. The bottom line is in verse 19, we are like those who are not called by your name. In view in this passage are both enemies outside and enemies within. As the prophet sees the enemies of other nations who oppress adversaries who have trampled down and also the enemy within of God's people who have wandered from their own hearts, uh, wandered in their own hearts away from God. So the prophet calls out, will God, what will God do about this problem? Will he look down from heaven? Will he see? Will his compassions be stirred? Will he soften our hearts? Will he return to to his people. And so the prophet calls out that he, God, would see their plight, that he would be moved to act. As I was preparing, I was reminded of the story that Young Lee told at our missions conference this past spring. I think it was in April. Some of you may remember this story. Of course, it was a very memorable one. I decided it's better to repeat someone else's good sermon illustration than to invent uh, a bad one by myself. (laughs) So he told us about a man in India who had become eventually became connected with the work of International Justice Mission. The man's name was Rahman, he was oppressed. He was caught in modern day slavery. He and his family and more than a hundred others were forced to work for this cruel master. They could not earn their way out of this problem. They were stuck. The authorities would do nothing about them. The man at the time, of course, was not familiar with the story of Jesus. But in his misery, he had a kind of prayer. And he didn't know, of course, to whom he was praying. He didn't know the story, but his prayer was something like this. If there is a God, won't he open his eyes and come to us in the form of a man and bring us freedom? What a picture of the incarnation, right? If there is a God, won't He open His eyes and come to us in the form of a man to bring us freedom? This is what Isaiah the prophet is asking God, will you look down and see my suffering? Will you act? Will you set your people free? Verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Oh, that you would is something more like if only you had. It's stronger than a wish. It's stronger than wistfulness. It's the cry of lost opportunity. It's the cry of the disaster that should have been avoided but hasn't been avoided. The same word in a completely different context and used in a very different way was the cry of God's doubting people from the crisis of Numbers 14. If you remember the story, the 12 spies had returned from scouting out the land, and 10 of them said, "There are giants in the land, we're doomed. You remember the response of the people, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Would that we had died rather than face the problem of this moment. Here, let's go back to Egypt was their response, and it led to that crisis and the punishment. Here the prophets would that, would that God would rend the heavens, would that God would come down, would that God would come near to his people profoundly, dangerously, dramatically. God, if you would have come down, then we wouldn't feel abandoned. We wouldn't feel like those who don't feel like they've been called by your name. But how could God come down? What would it be like if he did? He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. To rend the heavens would mean to to tear them apart, to rip them apart. In the Old Testament, what do people do when they're mourning? They rend their garments. They rip them in half to express their mourning and their lamentations. This is the kind of rending ripping apart that wild animals do to their prey in the Bible. In Psalm 35, David sings that his enemies are rending him with their curses and with their taunts and with their words, that he feels in a figurative sense that they're ripping him apart. The prophet Joel calls God's people to a different uh, kind of rending, a deeper kind of rending. Rend your hearts, rather than just your garments, rend your hearts in repentance, more than just your clothing. So it's a powerful picture. This is a strong word. What does it mean for God to intrude into our world? What would it seem like? The fabric of space-time continuum would be shattered, right? The heavens would be ripped open. A holy God breaking into a sinful world, And as it continues here, the prophet continues to paint this picture. What would it be like if God's actual presence came into the world? As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. God's presence would do amazing and dangerous things, that things would spontaneously combust. Brushwood would burst into flame. Water would boil Nations would tremble. This is what happens when volcanic lava hits the water, right? It's immediate boiling and, and steam. This is impressive, right? God's presence makes stuff happen in this vision of the prophet. Verse 3 reminds us of this very kind of display in Mount Sinai as we, read, as we would read about it in Exodus 19. When you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. God has already done this, the prophet is saying. The mountains quaked at your presence. God came down. God engulfed the top of Mount Sinai and showed the power of his presence with lightning and fire and thick clouds and smoke and the blast of a trumpet. And the mountain shook and trembled. And Moses had to tell the people to set up boundary stones around the mountain so that they wouldn't get close and if anyone got close and approached the mountain, they had to be killed, and you couldn't even kill them with that, with, by touching them. It's in Exodus 19. You can read it afterwards. <laughs> you had to stone them or shoot them with arrows. You couldn't touch them because they had touched the mountain where God's presence was. In this way, God's presence was seen. It was obvious. His pl- power was displayed, right? That all would see that he came down to meet with his people. And the prophet envisions that such a display would put the nations on notice, right? That they would tremble in verse 2, that God's name would be known, that God's fame would be known throughout the earth. But as we think about it, of course, such a display doesn't even guarantee that all would believe and trust in this God. In fact, this actual event happened in the history of God's people centuries earlier, and that hadn't prevented them from getting to this very spot of feeling like they had never been called by God's name and that he had never ruled over them. Even such a display was not a vaccine, was not a cure for the doubt and the wandering of the human heart. Tonight we celebrate... That something much more monumentally powerful happened, but mostly, at first, in obscurity. The most dramatic entrance of God into our world happened to unlikely people in unlikely places, announced to unlikely audiences. God slipped into the world. He didn't jar the nations and shake the mountains. He just stirred up at first a a little village in the hill country of Judea, and some shepherds in a field and some astute ones from Arabia who sensed that something was going on, something special was happening. There was a kind of disrupting, yes, as Pastor Steve has been preaching through, the the disruption of this in the lives of God's people. And yet, it wasn't the kind of drama that the prophet pictures. It's not the shaking of the world and the ripping open of the heavens. It's a great mystery, isn't it? God came near, but God came near with subtlety. The divine nature, the one fully God entered the world in a very ordinary way, at least at first. Of course, we know that the prophet wasn't really wrong. The entrance of the Son of God into our world was dramatic, but it was unfolding in kind of a different way as this child grew up. And as we read in the Gospels, we see, of course, that great signs accompanied him everywhere that real people were healed and real demons were cast out and real sons and daughters were restored to life. At his death, not the heavens were ripped open, but the curtain of the temple was ripped asunder from top to bottom to show that God had provided a new way and a living way for men and women and for girls and boys to come into the presence of this God. Most dramatic of all, of course, there was a real empty tomb on Easter morning. In the Gospels, we do see this kind of dramatic rending of the heavens that Isaiah describes only in one place, and one very important event. That's your Bible trivia question for tonight. Where does this happen? In three of the four Gospel accounts, there's a reference to the opening of the heavens, It's at the baptism of Jesus. Mark's account says this, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The heavens were split open. The heavens were rent asunder. The Greek word that is used here is the word from which we get the word schism or schizophrenic. That idea of the splitting open and dividing It's what the heavens looked like when Jesus was baptized and came up out of the water. At the baptism of Jesus, as the sign and the seal marking him as one of the covenant people, at that event, the heavens were opened. The Father is identifying Jesus as the only Messiah, the unique anointed one. But this one is also what he's identifying himself with. A covenant people. He's submitting to the sign of the covenant community. He's taking himself and becoming one of us. The heavens are opened at the baptism of Jesus so that all can know that this one is God who has come near to us. As indeed the Father speaks from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. That's when we see the heavens open in the New Testament and there's only one other place. This so often happens in biblical prophecy. Isaiah was also seeing what is beyond us. There's a final opening of the heavens that these are pointing toward and that we are longing for. It's yet to come in Revelation 19. John, speaking as a prophet, he sees this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The longing of the prophet, the longing of all of God's people from every generation and in every place will be fully met in that day. The heavens will be opened. Faith will become sight. God will come near and show without any obscurity, without any subtlety, without any confusion, without any misunderstanding, That this one, whose birth we celebrate tonight, that this one, his son, is the savior of the world who came to free his people from all of their sins and to fix all that is broken once and for all time. What are we supposed to do with this great news? Isaiah reminds us in verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Not the events in the past in history that we've heard about, not what we have perceived with our ears, not what we've seen with our eyes. Nothing shows us a God, any other God other than this one. And what does this unique and only God do? He acts. He keeps on acting, actually. It's a habitual sense here for those who wait for Him. And so, brothers and sisters, this is my encouragement for you tonight. The calling, of course, for us is to wait for Him, which is actually more difficult than it sounds. When this life seems that all that there is, when the needs around us are overwhelming, when we get devastating news of sickness and loss, when we're weighed down by our own sin and our own brokenness and our own weakness and our own grief and we're unable to sort it out, when a relationship ends pain, end painfully, when all of these things and a hundred more happen to us, we can feel just like the prophet, like we are not... We can feel like those who are not called by God's name. And so the kind of waiting that's before us is really a challenge. It's not just sitting on our hands and looking at our watches kind of waiting. It's a waiting to exercise a patient and confident and expectant faith. In the midst of an unbelieving and cynical world, we're actively waiting. We're to be the people who remember, who trust, and who believe, and who encourage one another with these words. The gospel is true. God is love. We're the people, these people, God's people, who have a message of hope for the world. What's our message? God has come near. God has invaded our world. God has fixed the problem. We've seen it, we believe it, and we're waiting for it. And as we wait, we see Him acting for us. He acts on our behalf, doesn't He? As this passage reminds us, even in ways we don't perceive, God is at work in His people. He's acting for us. He's doing things for his people. And as we think about it, the ultimate proof of that of course is here at the table as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. We see what why Jesus was born and what he did and what love looks like and how that message of hope is for us and for this world and for all who have believed. Tonight again, we eat and drink both in remembrance and in expectation of the mending of all things. The mending of all things. What a promise for us. What a hope to cling to. It's our encouragement from the prophet tonight. Please pray with me. Father, we are people who are broken and in need of a Savior. And we thank you that you have sent one. Jesus, we thank you as we celebrate this night that you have come for your people in the most profound way. You've shown us what it is to love. You've shown us what it is to, to sacrifice. You've shown us what it is to pay the penalty for sin and to receive a gracious gift. Jesus, we thank you for entering into our world. Be at work in us. Help us to trust you. Help us now as we prepare, as we continue in our worship, as we prepare to to commune with you. Speak to us and guide us through your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.